Welcome to New Life, everybody. If you guys would, go ahead and find a seat. That would be great. My name is Jeff Baker. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at New Life. It's a uh, privilege to have you guys worshiping with us. Um, At this same time frame, at 1045 during this service, we actually have three different campuses. Um, We've got our, you guys obviously that are here, you can see each other here in the main auditorium. We also have a whole group of people out in North Platte, as well as down in our gym at what we call the venue. So we've got one church, multiple locations worshiping together. It's It's a blast. And so it's fun being a pastor here. Yeah, we had a great Easter. I mean, man, great time last week. I hope you guys, uh, you know, found a, an encouraging moment where God was speaking to you and he was, you know, refreshing you and reminding you that he's still completely in control. Amen? He is. He is. He's completely in control. And never forget it. Never forget it. He had a plan from the beginning of time and he's still working his plan in your heart and in mine. Um, today we're going to be talking out of Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. There's some lessons that uh, the early church learned that we can still apply to our lives even to this day. And I thought we should look at those things and figure out what they are and then you know, figure out a way that we can apply them. So that's kind of where we're going. So lessons. And it made me start to think about, we all have lessons that we've learned. I think every single one of you could tell me a lesson. Some of you learned some lessons this past week that you'll never forget, Right? Others of you learned lessons when you were children that you're still practicing. But regardless of what the lesson is, just for a moment, we'll get to those. Some of you guys are people that learn lessons the hard way. And some of you, right, some of you are people that learn lessons the easy way. If you're sitting next to someone who learns lessons the hard way, just nudge that person now. Just to remind them, I know, I know, all right? I know. If you got a nudge, you probably flashed back to when you were a child and the many spankings that you received or the many groundings that you received or whatever the punishment was to help you figure out how to learn that lesson. Did you guys have parents? Like I had, I have parents as well, duh. I mean, come on. Yeah, I I don't have parents. I don't know where I came from. No, I have a mom and a dad and they actually watch every single week. So just for a moment, I love you, mom and dad. Okay, I'm not going to be one of those guys. My dad always tried to teach me this lesson. Son, I've, I've had some hard knocks. I've done some things. I've made some mistakes. Don't make the same mistakes that I've made. Learn from my mistakes and never do those again. Anybody else have parents that love them that made a statement like that? Yeah, I think we probably all did, but still some of us were the the hard learners, right? And it's one thing to learn a lesson the hard way at five. It's another thing to learn a lesson the hard way at 45. Um, It's a big, it's a big difference. But let's go back for a moment and talk about some of the lessons that we learned when we were children that we're still applying to our lives to this very day. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to flash an image on the screen in a second, and I want you to tell me what was the lesson from our childhood that we're still applying to this very day. Are you ready? Are you guys ready? Are you ready, North Platte, in the gym? Okay, here we go. Lesson number one. What's the lesson? Don't run with scissors in your hand. Yes. And some of you were told that just this past week. All right, so I'm not going to tell you who, but probably somebody was told, don't run run with scissors in your hand. All right, so that's a lesson, right? Is that still a good lesson to live today? Yes, of course it is, unless you want to have a bunch of holes in you which I don't think that's what you're going for. Here's, here's another lesson. How about this one? 
Do you remember that lesson? What was that lesson? Yeah, don't sit so close to the TV. What are you doing, right? You're going to ruin your eyes. You're not going to be able to see anything. But you sat there and you were like, but they're so big. It's amazing. And so there's still some husbands that probably sit, you know, one foot away from the TV playing that video game like, ah, man, it's amazing. All right, so here's another lesson. Let's go. Let's go after this one. Hmm. What, what do you think that lesson is? Chew with your mouth closed, right? Don't talk with food in your mouth. Don't talk with a mouth full of food. That's disgusting. That's disgusting. So we'll try to figure out how we can leave it up there for a really long time. And then, you know, you don't want to look at it, but you have to. And you're like, ooh, it's bad, but I can't stop looking at it. It's one of those kind of things, isn't it? You can't get your eyes off of it. So those are lessons. How about this, how about this particular lesson? Were you ever told you got to keep your room Clean, yes. Some of you need to know how to repeat that one. All right, keep your room clean. There were probably five husbands in the main auditorium that were told that this week, right? Are you with me? Anybody else with me? All right, yeah, we have a couple of you that are bold enough to admit that. Yeah, we have a couple of children that are going, it was me. Yeah, keep our rooms clean. Yeah, that's still something that we need to do today. Let's, let's change it for some of you. Keep your office clean. All right, that's a different. I'm stepping on too many toes when I say that, aren't I? All right. Keep our rooms clean. So um, that's a lesson we need to learn. And I thought, I wanted to kind of know, like, I work with a, a group of guys called our pastoral staff. And I thought it would be interesting to know what some of their rooms looked like when they were kids. Would you like to know what some of our pastoral staff's room looked like when they were kids? I mean, don't you think that what their room looked like as a kid might tell us something about how they behave as an adult? Let's just assume that it does for a moment. It'll make better humor. Um, all right, so what I first I got is I have Pastor Dean. This is Pastor Dean as a child right here. It looks like him. Kind of slightly reddish hair. You know, he's got his, uh, you know, I've got, I'm the Hulk underoos on. It's amazing. Toys are everywhere, and he's just like perfectly excited to be in the middle of it. All right, so there's Dean. The next one, the next one I've got for you, though, is I got a picture of uh, Pastor Dave, our campus pastor out in North Platte. This is Dave. Room's completely messed up. Dave only cares about one thing. I'm going to lead my younger brother in worship today. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> Come on, raise your hands. They're not high enough. Sing louder. And then he gives an altar call and gets his little toddler brother saved. So that's probably why North Platte is going so well, all right? But then, but then, and I had to dig hard in the archives to find this one, but I was able to actually come up with a, an old bedroom shot of Pastor Roger's bedroom. Take a look. Um, <laughs> so I think they had, they had to call the police in, I think, actually, because his mom was trying to find him and couldn't find him. So they had to come and find him in that. I think that's how the story went. You can ask him later. But I've only thought that it was fair. <laughs> Sorry, Raj, he's in the main auditorium. Just sit, just sit. You can, you, can, uh, you know, hurt me later. Um, but then I, I thought, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna like, show you some of the pictures of these guys in their rooms, you at least need to see what my room looks like. So I called my mom, I said, mom, send me a picture. So she sent me a picture of my room. And um, <laughs> it, was, it was all, and I, I got an iPad and everything. I don't, I didn't remember that, but evidently um, that explains a lot today. And I do agree with you guys. I mean, it doesn't look perfect. You know, the pillow probably could have been a little stretched out. So there's a few things that probably still could have been done there. All right. 
all joking aside, I mean, there was, there's other lessons that we learned when we were kids that I'm not going to show you a picture of, such as picking your nose, all right? I didn't figure you want to see a picture of that. Plus, as a leader, I wanted to show to you that there is a line I won't cross, and I think that's important that you need to know. So um, I've got, I do have a line, and I won't cross it. There are other lessons, though, that we've learned along life that if we don't, if we don't apply them correctly, can cause some, they can cause some serious problems, such as the lesson, don't spend more than what you have. Some of you are feeling the pain of breaking that lesson, you know, of spending more than what you have, and you get, you get, you know, bills that come consistently, and it adds extra pressure, and the number one uh, reason why couples end in divorce is finances. So that's a lesson, and if we don't follow that lesson, we feel the weight of it for long periods of time in our lives, and it can actually be passed down from one generation to the next. There are other lessons, though, like um, be a person of integrity, that's a lesson we still live to this day, and if you don't follow it, it'll get you in a lot of trouble. You lose integrity, it's a hard thing to get back, right? Now, you might be able to climb some, somewhere back out of that pit, but you may never get all the way back out of it. That's a lesson. Or how about this one? Have a good work ethic. That no matter what job you do, that you would work hard at it, and you would give it your best, and you would be one of the best employees that you could be. You, could, you would constantly be growing. You would constantly be evolving yourself, you know, learning new systems, learning new, new management skills, you know, learning new, uh, new ways to do business or whatever it might be, um, but constantly becoming uh, the best worker in your place of employment. These lessons are practical. These are the kinds of things that some we learned when we were children, some we're still learning to this day, but, that, but yet they, they help us be successful from a humanistic kind of perspective. But there are lessons, spiritual lessons, that we also have to learn. And at the beginning of the church, in Acts chapter 1 and 2, Jesus is no longer with them, and these disciples are thrown into the fire, and they've got to learn things quick. They're learning them on the fly. This is on-the-job training. How many of you guys, you guys like on-the-job training? Some of you love it. Some of you hate it, right? Because it brings extra pressure. That's where these guys were at. They were thrown into the fire, and they had to learn some lessons. And some of these lessons that they learned, these lessons from the first days, these things are still lessons that you and me have to know. We have to apply to our lives. We must live out so that the next generation will get the reins of, what it, uh, of the reins of what authentic Christianity looks like, and they'll carry it into the future. It's our responsibility to actually go back and to learn the lessons from the early church, apply them to today, so that the next generation of Christ followers have a church that's even better than what we have. And we would pass that off to them. So in, um, in light of the teaching series, Essentials, where I've been kind of giving you the back story on Scripture before we go into it, I want to do that again for you. Before you can get into Acts chapter 1 and 2, you have to really kind of start at the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is what we celebrated last week on Easter. The resurrection of Jesus started a chain of events that started taking place. Jesus actually started showing himself to his disciples in some pretty powerful, miraculous ways. Mary was at the tomb at the last closing chapters of John, and she's at the tomb, and she's looking into the tomb, and she's like, man, you know, Jesus is no longer there, and the stone is rolled away. You know, where did he go? And she's weeping at the tomb. 
She's literally there. She's knelt down and she's weeping. She's looking into the tomb. And what does she see? She sees two angels. And the angels say to her, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Then she turns and she sees another man. And the man she just assumes to be like the, the gardener of the place. And he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? And after those couple of moments, then all of a sudden she begins to realize this man's not the gardener, this man's Jesus. He's the rabbi, he's the teacher. And man, her face just lights up and she, she starts to glow. And then, and then a little while later, the disciples are in a room and the room is all locked up. The windows are closed, the doors are locked. They're afraid of what the Jews might do to them. I mean, they, they just crucified their leader, Jesus. So here they are, and they're probably strategizing, and they're trying to talk their way through this. What are we going to do? Should we leave the city? What should happen? And then, boom, instantaneously, Jesus shows up in the room. That would freak people out. When the doors are locked, you probably heard some grown men go, huh, like that. You know, something, something went down. One of them may have fainted. Who knows? But you know that that was just a moment that caught them off guard. Nobody was expecting it. All of them were there except for Thomas. Now, Thomas doesn't believe. Thomas is like, no, this is impossible. Who could do that? No one can do that. And, and the disciples are like, yeah, but all of us are standing here and we're all telling you the same thing. You think we're all trying to trick you or something? He goes, well, I'm not going to believe until I see it. I want to see the, the holes through his hands and I want to see the pierce in his side. And if I don't see that, I'm not going to believe. So what does Jesus do? One day, Jesus, poof, pops right in the room again. There's Thomas. And as if Jesus had been standing there earlier, Jesus says, Thomas, look, look at my hands. Pulls back the clothing. Look at, look at the hole in my side. And then Thomas begins to believe. But that's not the only times that Jesus showed himself. Jesus also showed himself again to Peter and some of those that were fishing. And Jesus shows up on the shore and they've been fishing all night and they had caught nothing. And Jesus comes and he says to them, guys, What's going on? They're about 100 yards off offshore. Have you guys caught anything? And they don't recognize that it's Jesus. They go, no, we haven't caught anything. He goes, throw your nets out on the other side of the boat. And their net was full of 153 fish, so many that they couldn't even pull it in. And at that moment, those in the boat said, that's Jesus. And Peter forgets about the fish, dives into the water, and just swims his way to the shore. And the disciples, they row the boat in and they get the fish up and Jesus grabs a couple of the fish and with a fire that he started, he prepares breakfast for them. And they eat breakfast with the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus goes on to reinstate them and to empower them to be the disciples that he, that he called them to be from day one. And he says to them, guys, you gotta go wait in Jerusalem and wait in the upper room because there's gonna be a power, a power of the Holy Spirit that's coming on you so that you can be my witnesses. And before they went to meet in that room, they met with Jesus on the top of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus, after, a few, after those words, he ascended into heaven. And they were just standing there watching him go. Can you imagine that? It's hard to even imagine it to this day. But could you put yourself in their shoes? Their, their leader got, gets crucified. They're scared and they're worried. And then all of a sudden, he poof, he shows up in their room. And then he does it again. And then he shows up on the beach and they don't recognize him. And now they're standing on this mountaintop and he ascends into the skies. You would stand there in this stair too. Because you're like, hold on, is this really it? You've done all these things. You've probably got one more thing you're going to do, right? And while they're standing there, two angels show up and they say, 
basically, again, guys, what are you looking at? Well, I'll tell you, what we're looking at, we're still trying to see that speck of our friend called Jesus. I think I can still see him. Peter, can you see him? I think I can. No, that's just a bird. Okay, we don't see him anymore. You're looking, and just the way you saw him leave, he's going to return again. That's the words that are said to them. At those words, they go to the upper room to pray. And in that, that moment of, of prayer, they realize, first, you know what we need to do? We lost Judas. I mean, Judas, Judas betrayed Christ. He, he turned him over. He sold him out for you know, just some silver. And Judas went on and he hung himself. We, we've got to replace him on our team. And so, so they, they decided there was a couple of men and they were praying about it. And then they came to a conclusion and they, they empowered one more man. And then while they're continuing to pray, the power of the Holy Spirit falls on them in such a powerful way that they begin proclaiming and praising God in, in languages that they never knew. But yet people were walking the streets because it was a festival in Jerusalem. And they're walking the streets and they're hearing in their own language people praising God and declaring how powerful and how mighty that he is. And the people on the street are so intrigued with this that they, they asked the disciples, what's going on? Well, what, what's happening here? And Peter begins to preach this amazing sermon of helping them understand what's happening all the way to the end where he gives an altar call and 3,000 people are added to the church. Instantaneously, they go from 100 and something or 200 to 3,000 plus. That's going to radically change your leadership. That's going to turn your whole organization upside down. The way you used to do things is no longer the way you can do them. And so they started meeting in homes and sharing with one another the things that they had. And they started breaking bread with each other and having fellowship with each other. And they were praying together. And they were giving to one another, you know, to, to the best of their ability. And, you know, they were loving each other. And in public, they were so attractive that at the end of Acts chapter 2, it says that God was adding to their numbers daily. Not every Sunday, but on Monday at your life group. And then on Tuesday at yours. And then on Wednesday when your group met, people were finding that they wanted to follow Jesus. And on Saturday when your group met, they wanted to follow Jesus. And then all of a sudden you discovered that someone had need and so you sold a donkey and you gave the money to them so that they could take care of their need. And then you, you discovered that somebody in your group, you know, needed some clothing and so you took it right out of your own drawer and you gave it to them. You discovered that someone in your group needed food, and so you went and you bought some, and you, you took it to them. And the, the, the Christianity was so contagious, and it was so life-giving that people wanted to be a part of it because it was something that as if they had never seen before. And all of this was being learned on the fly. So what are the lessons that you and me can hang on to that they learned in the first days that we still need to be applying today if we want to be a life-giving person and a life-giving church? Well, the first block we want to add to this wall is this. They had to trust the power of the Holy Spirit. They had to trust in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was a promise. It was a promise that Jesus gave. Remember what I told you in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said it this way. He goes, you guys will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If Jesus was here today and he made that statement, he would basically say to us, you're going to be my witnesses in Kearney, in Nebraska, in America, and to the ends of the earth. And that's a promise that he gave to the early church, and it's a promise he's still giving to this day. Trust the Holy Spirit because it's a promise from Christ. And when God makes a promise, you need to know something. He has everything he needs to back it up. 
He doesn't make promises that he can't back up. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Well, for a lot of reasons. But first, we needed the Holy Spirit just to accomplish the mission. That, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, was the mission. Go be a witness to the ends of the earth. We need it. The Holy Spirit for us today, if I can describe it in more of kind of a physical, illustrative way, would be to say that the Holy Spirit is the muscle on your body. That the bone and the skin all by itself would never be able to accomplish what your body was on this earth to do. You couldn't walk, you couldn't crawl, you couldn't go anywhere. But with the muscle, it takes that structure of your being and it propels you to do something that otherwise you couldn't do by yourself. That's what the Holy Spirit is still doing to this day. You, by ourselves, just Jeff Baker, flesh and blood, just here, powerless. But with God's Spirit, all things become possible. And that's what God was saying to them. You have a mission, and the mission you can't accomplish on your own. You're going to need my Spirit. So in what ways did God's Spirit live out in practical terms in Acts chapter 2? In what ways? The first one that we see is that the Holy Spirit helped them have biblical revelation. That these disciples, were, they, they didn't have all of the biblical revelation. That they weren't biblical scholars. They weren't the Pharisees or the teachers of the law of their day. These guys came from fishermen. They came from tax collectors. They didn't know all the scriptures like Jesus did. They heard Jesus quote a lot of scripture, but they didn't have it all figured out. They, you know, they didn't have all the scrolls of the Old Testament with them, of the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, and pull these things out and know exactly where to go to. They learned it over time. That's what I love about these guys. They were thrown into the fire, and they just kept growing, and they kept becoming the, the people that God wanted them to be. But they needed a supernatural help when it came to biblical revelation. So in Acts chapter 2, in this moment taking place in this upper room that they've never experienced before, they have no clue what in the world's going on, the Holy Spirit comes to them and he says, I want to remind you about some scripture, Peter, because these people are asking you a difficult question, and that is, what in the world is happening here? Peter, never having experienced it, not knowing what's going on, says these words in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. He says, this is what was spoken by who? The prophet Joel instantaneously the holy spirit goes hey peter don't forget what was spoken by the prophet joel because that's how you're going to help explain it to these people and then he also he quotes passages from the psalms from david and he he goes back to scripture and he starts tying things together i mean what you need to know is that peter didn't have time to write out a sermon like i worked on this week this was spontaneous on the spot you know get put on the spot and have someone ask you a biblical question and then try to recall some scripture you could even you could know the scripture, and when you get put on the spot and the heat gets turned up, your mind goes blank. Right? You've had that happen in other ways. Here's Peter. He could have easily had that kind of a situation happen, but instead the Holy Spirit fills his heart and his mind with God's word, and out of his mouth comes the spoken word of the revelation that the Holy Spirit's bringing to his heart. That's something you and me still need to this day. When we read God's word, we need to be asking the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes and to bring revelation. We need to be asking the Holy Spirit when we're in conversations with people, remind me of the scripture that I need to share with this person right now. We need to ask the Holy Spirit, remind me of the essential truths that I've heard since the beginning of the year that are represented by these blocks behind me in this wall. Remind me of those when I need them. We need that still 
to this very day. But we also need what the, what the early disciples understood about the Holy Spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit gave them guidance in making their major decisions. If you remember, I said that you know, Judas, he betrayed Christ, and he went on and he hung himself, and the disciples had to find who was going to be this next guy that was going to step into this place. And they had two basic names of people that they came down and they landed on. It was a guy by the name of Joseph and another guy by the name of Matthias. And then they had these two names, and what were they going to do with them? So here's what they did in Acts chapter 1, verse 24 and 26. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two that you have chosen. Then they cast lots, and the lots fell on Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. So what did they do? What did they do to trust the leadership of the Holy Spirit? What did they do? What was the first thing? They prayed. When you have major decisions that you, have to, that you have to make in life, is your first instinct to pray or is it to go, oh, I know what to do? I think for a lot of us, many times when we're in a situation where we gotta make a decision, we often reflect back and rely on what we know and what we've experienced. And we go back to what this little mind can contain. These guys went back and they said, only you know. And so they did something that was profound. They cast lots. Now, casting lots could have been as easy as writing Joseph on one rock and Matthias on another rock and then putting that into a container. And after having prayed, then they would have shook it up a little bit and then they would just would have poured it out onto the ground or onto a table. And the first rock to hit the table, they would pick it up and they would read the name. Why? Because they would just simply say, okay, God, we're going to trust you. And we know that you can make the right rock fall out. You can make the right name come about. We're going to cast lots. We're going to put all of the ability to select this into your hands. And we're going to trust that you're going to work it out. So they tipped it up and they poured it out. And boom, what name hits the table? Matthias. And so they go with it with great confidence, knowing that God, only you could lead us. Because they prayed. And they sought God. And they believed him. And they believed that the Holy Spirit was for them, not against them, and he was leading them. They, they trusted the Holy Spirit to guide their lives, and that became their second nature. Their second nature was to ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom. Their second nature was to ask the Holy Spirit for provision. Their second nature was to ask the Holy Spirit to help us make you know, important decisions. Their second nature was to read God's Word and to listen to the Holy Spirit. Is that your second nature? Is your second nature to, to, to have a relationship with God's Spirit in such a way that you are talking with Him daily? That you are seeking His advice daily? Because that was the lesson the early church learned. That there was this symbiotic relationship, this connection that was happening between the two of them that they could never sever or never break, or they were never going to accomplish the mission that God had asked them to do. And they trusted wholeheartedly. They gave everything to trust the Holy Spirit. Just like you and me, we have things that we trust, even sitting here right now. Do you have money in a bank? Well, then you're trusting that bank to take care of your money right now. Right now. It's not even a question for you. The money's in the bank. You're trusting them. Did you take your kids to school last week and drop them off and then drive to work or go back to your home and do whatever? Then you were trusting the school, weren't you, with your kids to make sure that they were going to watch over them, protect them, and instruct them in the way that they they needed to be. Are you going to go out to eat after this service? 
and you're going to order food at a restaurant, probably a restaurant you've been to before. Why? Because you trusted them. You trust them to make the food. Were you there watching them make the food? No, they're behind this closed door, mysteriously back there making food. You have no idea what they're doing. But you trust that the food is being prepared in a way that it needs to be, and if it doesn't, then, you know, you're never going to go back there again. How many of you guys have worked this past two weeks, but you haven't received your paycheck yet because it's still coming on the 15th, and you're trusting that your employer is going to give you that check on the 15th? See, we put a lot of trust in a lot of things that man does. Why not trust the Holy Spirit? By the way, he's perfect. Man makes a lot of, makes a lot of flaws. And in every one of the examples I gave you, there's a failure to back it up. An employer that didn't pay his employees. A restaurant that gave someone food poisoning. A bank that closed and you didn't get your money back. But now with the Holy Spirit. There's not a single instance where the Holy Spirit told somebody to go do it and it worked out wrong. There's not one. There's not one word of advice that the Holy Spirit gave someone and they went and they followed it through and it was the wrong thing to do. Because it's God's Spirit. And when God's Spirit speaks, it's truth. And truth leads to freedom. Truth leads to life. We've got to learn to trust God's Spirit just like we trust other things. That's the first lesson that the early church discovered. The second thing was this. We've got to be fully devoted. Fully devoted. Look at verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And it really shows us three things. All the believers, they devoted themselves to the first thing, which was what? The apostles' teaching, right? And then they devoted themselves to what? Fellowship. That's right. Fellowship is the second thing, which included sharing in meals and also partaking of the Lord's Supper together. But then the third thing was that they, they devoted themselves to what? Prayer. So you got these three things they devoted themselves. The apostles' teaching, fellowship with one another, and prayer. Let's talk about the apostles' teaching for a moment. It has everything to do with submitting to spiritual authority. None of that sounds fun. I know it. Because that means you have to trust the spiritual authority that God gave you. I have spiritual authority that's over me, and I know it's difficult at times. Spiritual authority that's over me will make decisions that I don't agree with, and I have to wrestle with it. But one thing I have found in my life, as many, many years being on staff, serving underneath a lead pastor, was this. The more that I submitted to that lead pastor, and I tried to, you know, be an, be an asset to him, and just serve him, and serve his vision, and help that vision come alive, God did some amazing things in my heart. You want to know some of the first ones? Peace. Joy. <laughs> I had joy. I, I was actually more humble when I was submitted to authority. Because it wasn't about what I could do. It was about what we could do. And I was serving the bigger vision. As I served him, I was honoring God. And as I honored God, what does God say that he'll do if I honor him? Honor you. It's not easy submitting to spiritual authority. There's temptation left and right just to be independent in our rebellious, independent nature. We always want to do that. But I'm telling you today, there is a great blessing that comes when these disciples learn what it meant to surrender to or submit to the apostles' teaching. I know this. They didn't agree with everything. Did they ask questions? They probably did. We still do the same thing today. But they, they probably asked a question with the right attitude. And if they didn't, then they repented of it. Did they always agree with everything? No. 
But what did they trust in? They trusted in, God, you're the one who brought that leader, and we're going to follow. So it's a hard thing for a lead pastor to be standing up here talking about that. But just please know this. We're not trying to create an occult. (laughs) That's not what we're trying to do. I'm just trying to teach you what God's word says. One of the lessons was, as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, God was adding to their numbers daily. And that's just something to consider. Now, when we preach, one of the things you should be doing is going back and checking God's word for it. That's what you should do. That's what you ought to do. I wouldn't expect you to do anything else but that. Another thing, though, that they did was this. They devoted themselves to fellowship with one another. So look, here's the second thing. First, they submitted to the spiritual leader. Secondly, they submitted to one another in fellowship with each other. I love this. I love it because it's super attractive to our community when we are submitted to each other. When we actually like each other. Go figure, right? When one church actually likes the people that are in it, that's somewhat attractive. On, tu- on Tuesday, Tuesday morning, I get a chance to hang out with my, with my team, my pastoral team. It's a blast. We hang out together, we strategize together, we pray together, we go eat lunch together. It's fun. Wednesday nights at my house, I have a bunch of young adults that come over. It's my opportunity to invest into the next generation. And it's a blast. And I love hanging out with them. Um, On Thursday mornings, I turn right back around and I wake up and I'm at a a men's event that starts at 6.15 in the morning. Listen to this. I get to be a part of it. That's a difference than I have to do it. I get to be a part. I don't even lead it. I get to go and just grow with other men in discovering what it means to be a godly man. Every week at the Baker home, we're either in someone, we either have people in our home or we're over at someone else's home. We're just doing life with people. It's actually quite fun. It's a a good time. We, We have a blast with it. Many times, you you probably have seen me, I can be found at a coffee shop. Anybody seen me at a coffee shop before? Yeah. You've seen my black Jeep at a coffee shop and you've wondered to yourself, does that guy do anything else but drink coffee? Well, no, when I'm there, I'm meeting with people. And I just, I enjoy that. And and it it looks beautiful in a community when people hear you going to someone else's home or you know they 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 hear you at the at the water cooler the next day or at work of the fellowship you had in your life group or the way you met somebody for coffee there's something about that that's contagious and the and the uh, the culture is looking for that and that's what the early church did and they maximized it and they grew daily but then there was a last place that they submitted to so they submitted to the leader they submitted or the leadership they submitted to one another And then lastly, they devoted themselves in prayer. They submitted to God. There's these three levels of submission that they learned through devotion. They submitted to God through prayer. So devotion requires loyalty. You can't be devoted to something unless you're loyal to it. And to be loyal to something demands submitting to it. There's no other way to get there. So healthy submission to leadership, to one another, and to God is attractive in our culture. And it helped them grow the church in a radical way. The third, though, essential truth, and the third block we're going to talk about today is this. They always made room for more. Wow. They made room for more. Toward the end of sermons, at the end of the sermon that Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 2, He gives this altar call, and he invites people to follow Jesus. And when he does it, 
3,000 were added to his numbers. Take a look at this in Acts chapter 2. It says, with many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Look what it says. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. One of the things I find so interesting about this passage is these were the guys who just killed his friend Jesus. They had just put him on a cross. They had mocked him, spit on him, beat him with a whip. I mean, they, they just beat him to a bloody pulp. It was horrific. These were the guys he was just hiding in a room from with the doors locked and the windows shut, wondering if they were going to turn on him. And what are his words back to them? He doesn't berate them. He doesn't beat them with his words. He doesn't, you know, uh, uh, you know, abuse them with his language. He doesn't turn to them and say, how dare you guys even ask me what's going on? You don't care about me, because if you cared about me, you wouldn't have killed my friend Jesus. You guys are the ones who took the Messiah. You're the ones who took the Lord, and you, you crucified him. You guys are losers. You guys are just a waste of my time. He didn't do that. Some of us would have, but that's not what he did. Instead, he warned them. But yet, at the same time he warned them, he encouraged them. And then he opened up his arms, and he said to them, would you like to become part of our family? Would you like to be part of us? Would you also like to call yourself a Christ follower? And 3,000 of them said yes. There's something in the heart of Peter that we have to continue to have. No matter what people say, no matter what people do, we have to keep opening up our arms and keep making room for more. And if God wanted to add 3,000 people to this church this Sunday, you do realize that that would radically change things. But you also know that our church is, is radically changing, and it's been changing you know, since its infancy, and it's continued to change even since our leadership. Change is inevitable if you want to be a part of a church that's continuing to grow and see people come to know Jesus. If you want to be following the lessons of the early church and you want to keep making room for more, change happens. This church doesn't look the same, sound the same, feel the same as it did, you know, 15 years ago. It doesn't look the same, sound the same, or any of those things that it did two years ago. And guess what's going to happen two years or five years from now? It's not going to look the same, feel the same. Things continue to change. When 3,000 people were added to the church, guess what? You couldn't know everybody's name anymore. So if that was the definition of church, we have to know everybody's name. Well, now your whole definition of church is out the window. If your definition of church was everybody has to be able to come together and meet in one space, no longer, we can't do that anymore. So what, we don't have church? Jesus is the one who's adding people to his church daily, daily. It, there's a price to be paid to keep opening up your arms and going, there's room for more. We'll, we'll, we'll cram in a pew and we'll make room for more. We'll set up some metal chairs in the front. We'll make room for more. We'll do like what they did back on the, on the West Coast during the, the Jesus movement days when it, there was so much there were so many people crammed into a building that all they could do was put a stool out in the middle of a stage and this guy sat down on the stage and he sat on the stool and he preached because people were everywhere. 
Are you willing to be a church that will continue to make room for more? Because if you are, you need to realize what you have right now and some of the things you cherish are going to go away. Is there room for more? That starts first in here. These were the lessons of the early church. Trust the Holy Spirit for everything. Fully devote ourselves to God in all of his ways. And constantly be making room for more. I'm so proud of you guys. I mean, last week for Easter, we had a record number of people come. In my heart, I was praying, God, you know, if if we could see 1,500 people come through the doors, that that would be awesome. And we didn't make it, but man, we got really super close. In all of our venues, there was 1,463 people that came to worship God. And that was amazing. That was awesome. It was awesome. That's the largest we've ever seen. Last year, it was like 1,250. That's a big jump. When you see jumps like that, things have to change. Why? So we can keep making room for more. We just keep making room for more. You keep adding chairs to your dining room table. You keep putting seats in in your living room so that people can come. You keep adding on to your house more bedrooms so that people can hang out. You keep putting more flat screens up so that more people can, you know, participate in the, in the show. Whatever it is, it happens. You know what I'm saying? You just keep making room for more. And in those numbers, we had a number of people that gave their life to Jesus. And we've got a lot of people, 29 people, that are getting baptized today because we keep making room for more, and that's exciting. 11 of them in our main auditorium. 13 of them out in North Platte today. Five of them down in the venue. It's exciting. Let's give God praise for that. Yeah. So it's our mission to preserve to preserve the lessons of the early days and to keep living those things out today so that we give to the next generation the most pure, authentic picture of what it means to, to know Christ and to love him. And you can do that because since day one till today, a lot of things have transformed and changed. But these lessons are still true. Devote yourselves completely to God. Always make room for others. Starts in your heart. God, make me hungry. Make me hungry for the lost. And then trust in the Holy Spirit. Let it become second nature that you would talk with him, interact with him, that you would seek his advice on on what you need to face, that you would ask him to meet you in that time of devotion and let let, let God's word come alive for you. So today in all of our venues, in all of our venues we're going to do something amazing you're going to be able to actually see and hear from the testimonies of those who have given their life to Jesus, who we are making room for. They're going to come and stand in the center of all of our stages, and they're going to give you a display in, a, in the briefest form possible of, of who they were and who they are. We call them cardboard testimonies. On one side of the cardboard, you're going to see who they were. Then they're going to flip it, and they're going to show you who they are. It's the briefest way we can proclaim a testimony here at New Life. It's going to happen in all of our venues. The people that are getting baptized here, you're going to hear their stories. The people getting baptized out of North Platte, you're going to hear their stories. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. After I pray, I'm just going to have you just remain seated. Just stay seated in all the venues. And these cardboard testimonies are going to happen. It might cause you to want to cheer. It might cause you to want to celebrate. You know, our worship teams... We'll be playing, and at the end of the cardboard testimonies, our worship leaders will invite you to stand and worship with us. 
And at that point, during our time of singing, all of the water baptisms will be taking place. This is a day of celebration for us, of people that are outwardly proclaiming that Jesus is their Lord and that he is their leader. So are you ready to celebrate today? Are you, are you ready? I mean, this today is a testament of following the Holy Spirit. Today is a testament of being a fully devoted church. Today is a testament of opening our arms up wide and saying there is room for more. That's what today is all about. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to continue on with our celebration. Father, I thank you. I thank you that, Lord, you are alive, you are well. Lord, you are working on behalf of your church, and you're transforming and you're changing people one person at a time. And today here at New Life, we get a chance to celebrate the great things that you're doing in our church, that you're growing us and that you're increasing us in three different locations today at the exact same time. Lives are being transformed. Lives are being changed. People aren't the same anymore. So Lord, I pray over this congregation. That this congregation would be a people fully devoted to you in every single way possible, listening to your voice and surrendering more of ourselves to follow you. We'd be a people that are fully fully devoted and, and willing to listen to the voice of your spirit and to trust your spirit. But you sent us your spirit to accomplish a mission, and we trust you for that. Lord, lastly, As we celebrate today with these cardboard testimonies and these water baptisms, we're celebrating a church that continues to open up its arms and says, let's make room for more. Lord, thank you for these lessons from the early church that we can continue to apply to our lives today, these essential truths. May we we be found faithful, leading them in our generation and passing them off to the next so that your church stays healthy and stays strong and stays with a sense of influence in our communities. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.